Story One of Over the Plum Pudding by John Kendrick Bangs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Over the Plum Pudding. One. I have been asked so often and by so many persons known and unknown to me why it was that a Christmas book that was to have been issued some years ago under my editorial supervision never appeared, although announced as ready for immediate publication, that I feel that I should make some statement in explanation of the seeming deception. The matter was very annoying, both to my publishers and to myself at the time it happened, and while I was anxious then to make public a full and candid statement of the facts as they occurred, Messrs. Hawkins, Wilkes, and Speedway deemed it the wiser course to let the affair rest for a year or two anyhow. They failed to see my point of view, that while they were responsible for the advertisement, I was assumed to be responsible for the book, and in the event of its failure to appear, it would naturally be inferred by the public that my work had not proven sufficiently up to standard to warrant them in continuing the venture. I did not press the matter, however, being too busy on other affairs to give to it the attention it deserved, and until now no opportunity to explain my connection with the unfortunate volume has arisen. I should hesitate, even at this late date, to give a wide publicity to the incident were it not that my mail has lately been overburdened by rather peremptory requests from the several contributors to the volume to be informed what had become of the tales they wrote and for which they were to be paid on publication ordinarily letters of this kind i should refer to my business principles the publishers themselves but in this emergency it happens unfortunately for me that the publishers have been retired from business and are now engaged in other pursuits one of them at the klondike another as a veterinary surgeon-general in santiago on the appointment of the secretary of war and the third living somewhere abroad incog as the result of his having drawn out all the capital of his partners and fled one early spring morning two years ago leaving behind him his best wishes and about eight thousand dollars in debts for his partners to pay it therefore devolves on me to explain to the irate authors as best i can what happened the explanation may not be shirked for they are wholly within their rights in demanding it my only hope is that they will be satisfied with my statement although i am quite conscious sadly so of the fact that to certain suspicious minds it may seem to lack credibility two to begin i will place the responsibility for the whole affair where it belongs it was the fault of no less a person than mr rudyard kipling Mr. Andrew Lang's connection with the episode, of course, involved us in the final catastrophe, but he is not to blame. Mr. Kipling started the whole affair, and if Mulvaney and Ortheris and Leroyd had behaved themselves properly, the book would now be resting calmly upon many an appreciative library shelf, instead of being, as it is, but a sorrowful memory and a possible cause for a series of international lawsuits this fact being understood as the basis of my argument i will proceed to prove it 
and to do so properly I must give in brief outline some idea of the contents of the book. It was to be called Over the Plum Pudding, or Tales Told Under the Mistletoe by Sundry Tatlers, edited by Horace Wilkinson. In fact, I hold a copyright at this moment upon this alluring title. Furthermore, it was to be unique among modern publications in that, while professing to be a Christmas book, the tales were to be full of Christmas spirit. The idea struck me as a very original one. I had observed that Fourth of July issues of periodicals were differentiated from the Christmas numbers only in the superabundance of advertisements in the latter, and it occurred to me that a Christmas publication containing some reference to the Christmas season would strike the public as novel, and in spite of the unfortunate overturning of my schemes, I still think so. Messrs. Hawkins, Wilkes, and Speedway thought so too, and gave me carte blanche to go ahead, stipulating only that I should spare no expense, and that the stories should be paid for on publication. I was also to enlist the services of the best persons in letters only. Taking this last stipulation as the basis of my editorial operations, it is not a far cry to the conclusion that I sought to get stories from such eminent writers as Mr. Hall Crane, Dr. Doyle, Mr. Kipling, Richard Harding, Davis, Andrew Lang, George Meredith, and myself. There were a few others, but these were people whose light shone forth suddenly and brilliantly, and then went out. I shall have no occasion to mention their names. It is enough to call attention to the fact that ultimately they were all I had left. Mr. Kane's contribution was a charming little fancy, written originally for children, but sent to me because it was the only thing the author happened to have on hand at the moment he received my request. It was called, if I remember rightly, the inebriate Santa Claus. It was full of that spirit of life and gaiety which has been such a marked feature of Mr. Kane's work in the past, and was written with all of that fine, manly vigor that Mr. Kane puts into his every word. Sunshiny, I should call it, if I were seeking for the one word which summed up the virtues of the inebriate Santa Claus one glowed as one perused it with the warmth of the whole thing especially in such passages as this for instance his downward trip through the chimney of marston hall gave him confidence in himself he had observed as he was about to leave the roof of higginbotham castle that his footprints in the snow were suggestive of his actual condition and he wondered if he could possibly get through the evening's work without catastrophe but the marston hall chimney flue restored his confidence it was straight and after his descent the soot that clung to the inner walls like bad habits to a man showed none of the vacillating lines which were the essential characteristic of his footprints on the roof he was sobering up i wish i could remember the story as a whole it would be unjust, however, to the author to try to reproduce it from memory, and I shall not make the effort. It went on to tell, however, how the good old saint, in his unfortunate condition of inebriacy, overturned the Christmas tree at Marston Hall and set fire to the house, resulting in a slight singeing of his own person and the destruction of the hall, 
together with all the inmates, a fact that so distressed the unhappy Santa Claus that at the next nursery he visited he resolved to reform and indulge no more in strong drink, although the nurse, on putting the children to bed, had departed, leaving a bottle of whiskey upon the mantelpiece, this showing Santa Claus's powers of self-control in the face of temptation. Altogether, as I have already said, the story was full of import and sunshine, and, as may be seen from my brief and inadequate description, was possibly more fitted for children than for the adult mind. 3. Mr. Meredith's story came next, and it had all of that charm which goes with the average Meredithian production. To call it dictionary-esque is not too high praise to bestow upon it. What it was about I never really gathered, although I, of course, read it through several times before accepting it, and perused the proofs carefully some eight or nine times. There were allusions to Santa Claus in it, however, and I therefore let it pass, feeling that to the admirers of the master's genius its message would ring out clear and crisp, like the glad chimes of the Christmas morn and it was my desire to be the bearer of glad tidings to all people, whether I was myself in sympathy with their literary tastes or not. I recall one page in the story, the last of all, however, which struck me as a marvel. Fotherington, whom I guessed to be the hero, is standing on top of a shot-tower in London, about to commit suicide by jumping down, when all of a sudden Santa Claus appears beside him and inquires if the tower is a chimney or not. Fotherington gives a throat-gasping laugh and invites Santa Claus to join him in the jump and find out for himself. The author writes, At this the spirit of the hour-god, the multitudinous larvae of his emotions, intensified by the nose-whirling impertinence of the other, gazed eyes tear-surging towards the reddish northern cheek of the piping east human in its bulk the wharf cranes rising superabundant from the umbrageous onflowing of the commerce-ridden stream piercing the middle distance like a mine-hid vein of purest gold in the mellowing amber of approaching dawn flying seaward curdling in its mad pressure ever onward soon to be lost in the vaguely infinite beyond which unconscious of the perils of the inspired homecoming lies that of which homogeneous man may speculate but never by reason of his inflated limitations approximate without expletion beg pardon said he with an interrogation in his inflection i was not aware of the facts Fotherington was silent for a moment, and then, recognizing Santa Claus, a shame-surge incarnadined his cheek, and he answered strenuously apologetic, This is the shot-tower. The sight of you restores me to life. I shall not again dwell upon self-destruction. Heaven bless the spirit of the hour. He buried his face in the saint's pack, and hot tears sprang forth from his vision. "'Beg pardon again,' observed Santa Claus, drawing himself away. "'If you must weep, weep on my shoulder, not on my pack. The toys are not painted in fast colors.' And the two went down together. 4. 
the contribution of mr davis was a most excellent sketch of the inimitable van bibber and told how on his way to a dance late one evening during christmas week he encountered snuggled in a doorway near the north river a poor little street gammon nearly frozen to death van bibber saves the child's life by removing his dress coat and wrapping it up in it the result being that he has to lead the cotillion at mrs winchley's clad in a fur-lined overcoat it was a tender and touching little literary gem and was full of the fine sentiment and lofty moralizing for which this author has always been noted its humor may well be imagined the little talk between van bibber and travers in the dressing-room as to van bibber's dilemma when he realized how his impetuosity had led him into giving the boy his coat was a characteristic bit and ran somewhat like this what the deuce shall i do he said fanning his somewhat flushed face with the silver-backed hand-mirror i can't lead the cotillion in my shirt-sleeves no you can't assented travers with a droll smile what an ass you were not to give him your fur-lined overcoat instead oh, it wouldn't have fitted him said van bibber absently poor little devil there's only one thing you can do van said travers after a moment's pause either don't stay or dance in your overcoat that's two things retorted van bibber of course i've got to stay i told mrs winchley i'd lead her cotillion and i've got to do it do you suppose people would say anything if i did appear in my overcoat not if they had any manners they wouldn't said travers of course it will be observed but if they know anything about good form they'll keep quiet about it then it's settled van bibber said quietly i'll wear the fur overcoat and to disarm all criticism i'll simply tell everybody i have a fearful cold and don't dare take it off come on let's go down it's half-past one now and mrs winchley told me she wanted to begin early so as to have it over with before breakfast five it was my pleasure next to have a sherlock holmes story from dr doyle wherein the great detective is once more restored to life and through an ingenious complication discovers himself his sudden disappearance which was never fully explained did not really result in his death but in a concussion of the brain in his fall over the precipice which drove all consciousness of his real self from his mind found in an unconscious condition by a band of yodelers he is carried by them into the tyrolese alps where after a prolonged illness he regains his health but all his past life is a blank to him how he sets about ferreting out the mystery of his identity is the burden of the story and how he ultimately discovers that he is none other than sherlock holmes by finding a diamond brooch in the gizzard of a christmas turkey at nice where he is stopping under the name of higgins is vividly set forth and you have never really ascertained mr higgins who you are asked lady blenkinsop as they sat down at mrs wilbraham's gorgeous table on christmas night no madam he replied sadly but i shall ultimately triumph 
My taste in cigars is a peculiar one, and no one else that I have ever met can smoke with real enjoyment the kind of a cigar that I like. I am searching, step by step, in every city for a cigar dealer who makes a specialty of that brand who has recently lost a customer. Ultimately I shall find one, and then the chain of evidence will be near to its ultimate link, for it may be that I shall turn out to be that man. Thus the story runs on, and the pseudo-Higgins delights his fellow-guests with the brilliance of his conversation. He eats lightly, when suddenly a flash of triumph comes into his deep-set eyes, for on cutting open the turkey gizzard the diamond brooch is disclosed. He seems about to faint, but with a strong effort of the will he regains his strength and arises. "'Mrs. Wilbram,' he said, quietly and simply, "'ladies and gentlemen, I must leave you. I take the 9.10 train for London. May I be excused?' The eyes of the company opened wide. "'Why, must you really go, Mr. Higgins?' Mrs. Wilbram queried. "'It is imperative,' said he. "'I am going to have myself identified. The finding of this diamond brooch in a turkey gizzard convinces me that I am Sherlock Holmes. Such a thing could happen to no other, yet I may be mistaken.' I shall call at once upon a certain Dr. Watson of London, a friend of Holmes, who will answer the question definitely. And with a courteous bow to the company he left the room, his usually pale features aglow with unwonted color. Of course the surmise proves to be correct, and the great detective once more rejoins his former companions, restored not only to them but to himself. It was one of the most keenly interesting studies of detective life that Dr. Doyle or anyone else has ever given us, and my regret that the story is lost to the world amounts almost to a positive grief. 6. The only other notable efforts in the book were, as I have already indicated, from the pens of Andrew Lang and Rudyard Kipling, and as the preceding stories were characteristic of their authors, so were these equally so. I have not the time to more than suggest their tenor briefly. Mr. Lang's story was one of his charming made-over fairy tales, and he unfortunately introduced that most fearsome of dragons, Fafner, into it. He was held, however, in captivity, and had the situation in which Mr. Lang left him been allowed to remain undisturbed, all would have been well, and over the plum-pudding would not have met with disaster. Mr. Kipling, however, chose to contribute a Mulvaney story, and herein lay the whole trouble. Mulvaney and his two roistering companions, Ortheris and Leroyd, start in on a Christmas spree, and they do it in their own complete fashion, and Mr. Kipling never in his life drew his characters more vividly and vigorously but this time he did it too vigorously. The three musketeers of the British army got beyond his control, and it is the fact that when over the plum pudding was ready for presentation to the public, they broke loose from the story in which they were supposed to be confined, went rushing and roaring, regardless of the etiquette of the situation, through every other tale in the book, found the bottle of whiskey which the nursemaid in Mr. Kane's story had left on the mantelpiece, drained it to the dregs, and then, under the mad influence of the alcohol, 
let Fafner loose. Their fate may be easily imagined. They were at once destroyed by the angry beast, who, after making a meal upon them, rushed like a steam engine through the Sherlock Holmes story, swallowing its characters one and all as though they were naught but salted almonds, breathed fire upon Meredith's shot-tower until it tottered and fell, a smoking ruin, chewed up the frozen little gammon in the Van Bibber sketch, withered Van Bibber and his overcoat and his friends by one snorting blast of steam from his left nostril, and, in fact, to make a long story shorter than it might be, strewed blue ruin from tidal page to finis of over the plum pudding. It is the fact that on the morning set for the presentation of the edition to the public, on opening my own copy of the book, there was not a character in it left alive. Not a house that had not been reduced to charred timbers and ashes, not a scene that was not withered as by the flames of perdition, and where once had been a strong portrayal of a scene of happy social revels, the ballroom of Mrs. Winchley, where Van Bibber was to lead the cotillion, lay Fafner, dead. Kipling's characters were too much for his digestion. 7. That is the story of Over the Plum Pudding. That is why it never appeared. That is the explanation of the editor. I admit that in some ways the explanation seems scarcely credible, but it is in every respect truthful, and on my return from Manila I will prove it to all suspicious-minded persons who may choose to doubt it, for I can show them the copyright papers of the book, the advertisement of its approaching publication, my contract with Messrs. Hopkins, Wilkes, and Speedway, and a few press notices I had myself prepared for its exploitation. I can also prove that Mr. Kipling draws his characters so vividly and vigorously that they stand out like real people before us, and certainly if they can do that, there is no reason why they should not be able to do all that I have claimed they did do. End of Story 1